Well, good morning again, everybody. As announced, we are turning in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12 and continuing our studies in the book of Romans. <clears throat> I was reading the newspaper, uh, reading the Northern Echo recently, and it was on Thursday. It's, it's kind of a common sort of story that the media likes to report on, but there was a terrible, um, a terrible accident uh, that was done in Bishop Auckland. There was a chap called Kyle Ord, and basically he was working on the roof of an equestrian centre, fixing a skylight, and he fell through the roof um, and landed on the ground, breaking multiple bones, and it was a really bad way. Then the Great North Air Ambulance Service, they turned up very rapidly and were able to take him to the RVI. And despite multiple injuries, he managed to make a good recovery. And they told him that it was only millimetres away from breaking his neck. And then afterwards, um, what the, the newspaper were reporting on was how, how he then met up with the crew that, that were there when he had his accident. And he was singing their praises, talking about how wonderful they were. So he said, the Great North Air Ambulance are fantastic. I would physically do anything for them. And he then proceeded to talk about how he would do some charity work and ensure that their work was able to continue. And it's always really heartwarming to read of such stories where people get to meet the person that's rescued them from disaster or the medics that saved their life at some point. And in a way, then, that's the same kind of experience every one of us have had as Christians, as those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. We were under the wrath of God. We deserved God's judgment upon us. We were walking in darkness. We didn't care about God. And then in great love, God intervened in our lives and individually rescued us. And in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God took on human flesh, bore our judgment upon the cross, and then has set us free from all the condemnation that we were afraid of. And in a sense, then we return to God and and rejoice in the fact that he's done so much for us. We, in essence, go back to him and say, because you've done this for me, then I owe you everything. There's, there's nothing that I can hold back. I would do anything for you. And indeed, that's what we've been singing in our, our hymns from the very outset this morning. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, demands everything of us. Anne Steele, in, in her wonderful hymn where she talks about the sovereign of the skies stooping down from wretchedness and dust that guilty worms might rise, then finishes off by saying, what glad returns can I impart for favours so divine? Oh, take my all this worthless heart and make it only thine. And again and again, that's the, the theme of our hymns where we rejoice in what God has done for us and say, because God has done this, then he, the, he deserves everything from us. There's nothing that we can hold back. And that's the point then that we reach at Romans chapter 12. In the preceding chapters that we've been examining together, Paul has explored what it is that God has done for us. Whereas we were under the wrath and judgment of God, God intervened and in the person of the Lord Jesus has set us free. He has justified us. He has declared us right in his sight. And because Christ has died, then we don't need to fear the penalty of sin that used to haunt us. And then chapters 9 through 11, you see, it, it further explores that theme of God's grace. And it says that God's grace, it's being poured out in the Gentiles right now, but the Jews will in due course experience this outpouring of God's grace upon them as well. So whether it's Gentiles or Jews, we're all going to experience this grace of God. And so when we come to chapter 12, the question is, well, how do we live in view of God's grace? God has been so good to us. How do we respond? So let's read this morning from Romans chapter 12, 
Uh, and I'm reading this morning from the NIV, and it says in God's word, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to, present, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage or exhort, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And this is God's holy word. Now Paul begins his appeal to us in these verses by urging us to live out our lives in view of the mercies of God. And when we see then the mercy that God has shown to us as Christians, then we honestly cannot be the same again in view of it, because of it, then we're different. And what's fundamental for Paul is that the new life that we live out as Christians is never a way of earning God's acceptance. It's never a way of earning something from God. It's always on the back of God's mercy. And so you'll find that again and again in Paul's letters. He always explains in the first chapters what God has done for us. And then it's only after he explains what God has done for us that he explains how we ought to respond to that. And it's because of the fact that God has acted and shown the initiative first in rescuing us and redeeming us that we can then respond to God in obedience and have the motives to actually live holy lives for him. So whatever um, we're going to read in these following chapters right through to the end of Romans, it shouldn't be misunderstood as if Paul's trying to say to us, this is the way that we have to live if we want to earn God's acceptance, because he's already explained to us in the previous chapters that is a gift. And it's only on the basis of that gracious gift that we can live out lives that are pleasing to God. So in view then of God's mercy, how ought we to respond? Well, Paul's answer is actually quite straightforward in many ways. It's something which is the consistent theme of scripture, both in the Old Testament and the words of the Lord Jesus. You remember the Lord Jesus was asked what the great commandment, what was the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Lord Jesus explained that this is what the whole Old Testament scriptures commands were about. This was what the law was about. We love God first and foremost, and then we love each other as we love ourselves. And this then is a helpful way of thinking about how Paul then elaborates this in these verses. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul is explaining for us how we ought to live lives of love for God. Because of what God has done for us, then we ought to love him with all of our being. 
And then in verses 2 through to, or 3 through to 8, and right through to chapter 15, we see the duty of love to those around us in various different spheres, how we ought to live lives that, de- that demonstrate our concern for other people. And so with that framework in mind, let's think about how Paul tells us to live out our lives then in view of God's mercy. And so he says, first of all, that in view of the mercy of God, by God's mercy, we ought to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, this is a call for nothing short of complete dedication to God, entire dedication to God and his service. Because God has unreservedly loved us, then we respond in unreserved love for God in return. And and in these words that Paul says to us, there's a few things that are worth then thinking about in a little bit more detail. First of all, let me clear up uh, a bit of a misunderstanding in these verses. When Paul says to present or offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, some commentators and preachers point out the Greek tense of this word, and they point out that this is what's known in Greek as the aorist tense. We don't have an equivalent in English, so don't worry about it. Uh, and it is suggested that the aorist tense is a tense which means that it is something which occurs once with ongoing effects. And so on the basis of that, some uh, preachers will argue that what Paul is saying here is that there's this second experience that you have to reach in your Christian life where not only have you trusted in Christ, but Paul then is saying you've got to go on to this next stage where you present your body as a living sacrifice to God. There's this act of entire sanctification or entire dedication where you present yourself entirely to God. So it's this kind of second experience of grace, some of them say. But actually, that is a misunderstanding of the Greek tense. Um, And without going into all of the details, the Greek tense here simply is used without any reference to how frequently it actually occurs. The emphasis is simply on the act. Do it. Offer yourselves. Present yourselves as living sacrifices to God. So Paul isn't saying, here's a point that you have to attain in your Christian experience. Paul is saying, this should be the pattern of your life. This is how we respond to God's grace. And in view then of the mercy of God that we've experienced, we are to hold nothing back. We are to present ourselves entirely to God. And whether that happens once or a thousand times is really irrelevant. The point is that this is what we have to do. The other thing that's worth clarifying too is that Paul calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, Paul isn't just thinking about offering our bodies and leaving our minds behind, because you already see in verse 2, he talks about how we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so Paul is not just calling us to offer one part of ourselves, rather the body is used as a, a part for the whole. It's used to represent the whole person, and Paul is calling us to offer our entire beings to God, our entire bodies unreservedly to God in his service. And so with these clarifications in mind, we can start to think about what it means for us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Now, if you think about the Old Testament, and indeed much of Roman pagan religion, you'll discover that a whole lot of it was really about sacrifice and understanding how to offer the appropriate sacrifices to the deity. And the Romans, they were obsessed with it. And when you come to the Old Testament, you'll find all kinds of regulations about what sacrifices to be offered, when they were to be offered, the precise nature of the sacrifice to be offered, and all of these detailed regulations. 
But the important point was that all of these sacrifices were made as a way of presenting the animal to God and saying that this belongs entirely to God. We're giving the animal to God. And in the same way, Paul is calling us not now to give up an animal to God, but give up ourselves to God entirely without reserve. But the, the key difference, of course, is that in the Old Testament, that these sacrifices were, were dead on the altar. These sacrifices weren't living sacrifices, they were dead. And more than that, they were unwitting sacrifices. They weren't lambs being led to the slaughter thinking, oh, wonderful, I'm going to be a sacrifice. Precisely because they didn't know what they were doing. But the difference with us is that we offer ourselves as spiritually alive people who have been made alive by Jesus Christ and we are offering ourselves willingly to God. We are living sacrifices, offering ourselves to God for his service. And this, says Paul, is our, our true and proper worship or our reasonable service or spiritual worship. And so you can see there's various different ways of translating it. Reasonable service is a good translation. Spiritual worship is another good translation. But perhaps the best way of thinking about this is along the lines of informed service of worship. This word reasonable or spiritual, it simply means informed. And the contrast that Paul is making is with the, the habits of the Roman pagans, or, or even with many people in the Old Testament, whereby when they offered their worship to God, their service of worship to God, they, they really didn't know very much about what they were doing. It was just ritual. They were just doing it as a matter of form. And it wasn't really that their heart was in it. Whereas Paul is saying to us that what we offer to God is our informed worship, our reasonable, reasonable or rational service of worship. Or our spiritual worship. This is true worship that's being offered to God. Precisely because we've been brought to know God and know what he wants from us. And so this isn't something that we're doing just out of form or just because we've been told to do it. But because we've come to know God, uh, we do as the Lord Jesus says and worship God in spirit and in truth. And Paul says that this is holy and pleasing to God. And so nothing short then of entire devotion to God is what is expected from us who have experienced God's mercy. And the magnitude of God's grace then is the measure by which we should measure our response to God. Because God's love towards us has been so great that our response cannot have any limitations upon us. God held nothing back in loving us so how can we hold back anything in our response to God and one of the reasons why I think this can't be understood as a, as a one-off active devotion or dedication to God is because we continually find new areas of our life where we haven't fully offered ourselves to God because one of the things is that our lives keep on changing all the time new circumstances creep into our lives uh, we hit new milestones in life uh, and our life is different when we're single to when we are married to when we've got children to when we have illness to when we've got one job or another job to where we lose our job to when we're retired all of these different life circumstances means that our life is constantly changing and that means that the nature of our obedience will also change as well and we need then to make a conscious decision to give ourselves to present ourselves entirely to God 
And on top of that, the fact of the matter is that the world continually encroaches upon areas that we have previously committed to God. Previously, where we were completely dedicated to God and offered ourselves entirely, before long we find that there's erosion in our obedience and that we're no longer as fervent as we used to be. And again and again, Scripture has to remind us to renew our devotion, to return to the love that we haven't had at first. And so there is nothing else except for re-offering ourselves to God as a response. And this mindset of entire devotion to God is then spelled out for us in verse 2, where Paul explains exactly what it means to offer ourselves to God in in our experience. He, He says that we shouldn't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in a very memorable paraphrase of these words, J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, wrote, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And I think that's a very nice metaphor. It's not an exact translation, but it's a nice picture, isn't it? That the world tries to squeeze you into its mold, to conform you to its way of thinking and acting. But what God is doing is that God is remolding us from within. He's changing us to make us into the people that he wants us to be. And we used to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Um, Romans chapter 128 says that God gave us over to a depraved mind to do things that ought not to be done. That was our experience precisely because we were steeped in the world and its way of thinking that ignores God and had no interest in pleasing God. But the miracle of new birth is such that God enters our lives and transforms us from within so that we start to think and act differently. And that whole process works, as Paul says, through the renewing of our mind. And that's a really important point to grasp. We need to have our minds renewed. And growing as a Christian into the person that God wants you to be means that we need to use our minds. We need to think seriously about what God tells us in his word. I'm not suggesting that all of us need to be intellectuals or scholars. That's absolutely not the case. But Paul and all the other apostles, they took very seriously the importance of Christians understanding scripture so that they might understand God's purposes in redemption, so that they might understand God's plans for them, so that they might understand how to live and act in this world. And so Again and again in these letters that Paul and the other apostles wrote to Christians in the Roman Empire, they were explaining in detail what God was doing. And the apostles expected those Christians to read these letters carefully so that they would understand what God was doing. And the responsibility then in us is no less that we should seek to understand God's word and so to have our minds renewed, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, the outcome of this renewed mind is explained for us in the second part of verse 2. Paul says that when we have this renewed mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So when we know God's truth, this allows us to actually approve it, to prove it and test it out in our daily experience. And Paul then describes what God's will is as good, pleasing, and perfect. When we put it into practice, this is the way that we find it to be. It is good, it is pleasing, it is perfect. And so what Paul is emphasizing for us here in verse 2 is that this transforming of our minds is 
vital, but God's process of transformation isn't just an intellectual transformation. It's a process of changing our minds, which then leads to us changing the way that we live so that when we know how God wants us to live, we put it into practice and we test it out. We approve God's will in our lives. And so when we go through various experiences in our lives, it gives us the opportunity to put into practice what God wants from us to see how good and pleasing and perfect it actually is. So if we're called to go through suffering, for example, this then becomes an opportunity for us to actually prove God's will. So does God call us to rejoice in suffering? Then we're to put that into practice and to see from our actual experience what that's actually like. Or if we're brought into temptation of some sort, then we are to prove God's will by actually loving God more than the temptation of sin itself. And so demonstrating how good and pleasing and perfect God's will is. So if we're entering a new season of life of some sort, then again we're called upon God to demonstrate again in these new contexts that we haven't been in before just how good it is to actually obey God. And so what we're called upon to do is not only to know the right thing through the renewing of our minds, but to put it into practice and to actually prove, to demonstrate through our experience that this isn't just theory. This is something which is true. We've experienced in our lives how good and pleasing and perfect God's will is. And so in verses 1 and 2, what we've got here is the central pillar of the Christian life. That if we are going to respond to God's mercy appropriately, then what we do is we offer ourselves unreservedly to God. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, holding nothing back. And we offer ourselves our bodies, our minds, every single part of us to the service of God. And yet if Paul had finished there, we might get the idea that the Christian life is a kind of individualistic affair. Just me and Jesus. Just a private devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for Paul, our response to grace is as much a corporate affair, even as our, our salvation itself is a corporate matter. That's not to say that, that salvation isn't individual. Of course it's individual. And, and that then requires that our Christian lives should be ones of personal devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing less than that. But it is much more than that, precisely because when God saves us, part of what he does is he brings us into the church. This is what it means to be saved, to be brought into this new community. We've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. We've been brought into this new sphere of relationships. We've got new brothers and sisters, and we've got all of these new family members that we've got to live and serve among. And so this then starts to fulfill the second great commandment, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And the first context in which that's applied is in the local church. And now the first instruction that Paul gives in this vein is in verse 3, and he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So God's given everybody this measure of faith. He's allotted out a portion of faith to each of us, and we'll come back to that. But the reason why this is important is because in the context of offering ourselves to God as, as living sacrifices, then it, and bringing us into this new sphere of relationships, inevitably there's going to be problems in those relationships. And you find this in the very beginning of our Bible. Remember Cain and Abel offering the very first sacrifices that we've got to God. 
And what happens after the sacrifices are offered? Well, jealousy springs up. Uh, rivalry springs up. And Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. And, and so even in the church, when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, offering ourselves to God in his service, then, then before long people start to think, well, what, I, what I'm offering to God is far more important. And we start to have this inflated view of ourselves. And at the very outset, Paul has to put pay to that idea and deal with an idea like that there. Uh, and it's interesting that when Paul is talking about this, he says that we're to think of ourselves with sobriety, with sober judgment, that we're to think seriously, properly about ourselves. He doesn't say that you're just to think of yourself as a nobody, because that's all you are, you're nothing. Um, sometimes that can just be false humility, can't it? We say, oh, I'm nobody, I've got nothing to offer. And in actual fact, we do believe that we're somebody. We're just pretending to be, to be humble in some way. That's false humility. And so what Paul is saying here, he isn't trying to get us to mean ourselves and to think, to think nothing of ourselves. What he's saying is to think, to think soberly about yourself because, because actually God has given you a, a responsibility within the church which is important. But the way to not think of yourself in, in an inflated way is to actually realize that there are other people in the church and they're doing functions that are vitally important that you cannot do. And when you start to realize that we actually need each other for the different roles that we fulfill in the church, that's when we start to think about ourselves more soberly. And we realize that whatever responsibility God has apportioned to us in the church isn't the be-all and end-all. And we start to then think of ourselves in a little bit more sobriety. And so Paul says that we ought to think in accordance with the faith that God has measured out to us, the faith that God has distributed to us. And the idea is that God has given us a faith to serve him. So if faith refers to the spiritual insight that God has given us to know him, then I think part of that faith is the knowledge of how we ought to serve him in our particular spheres. Uh, that, that we've got a faith to understand what it is that God has called us to do in the church and in our separate spheres of life. And that, that faith is allotted individually, uniquely to each one of us. And along with that understanding, that faith is given grace to enable us to actually do that. And Paul's point is that it's different for each one of us. And so in verses 4 and 5, Paul presents the image of a body. And just as the body is entirely one, and it needs all of its members to actually function together, so he says, in Christ, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And so what he's stressing is that we are one body, we're united, and we need each other. This then is the, this is the antidote to rivalry and jealousy to actually realize that, that we need each other, that we cannot do without one another because we've all got different functions. This then is actually part of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, Paul writes, And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. This is why it's symbolically important that we start out at the beginning of our meeting with one loaf and then we break it and all take part from it to demonstrate symbolically that we're, we're all part of the one body. We all draw our life from one source, the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all bound together in one body, the, the, the mystical body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're all part of and individually members of it. 
And so the very symbolism of what we do here in the Lord's Day morning is, is not just about thinking about our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also is about thinking about our relationship to one another. We're all part of one another. And so then this interdependence that is emphasized actually gets worked out in the way that Christ has given each of us a different allocation of faith, just as verse 3 says. And this thing gets picked up in, in verses 6 through to 8, where, where Paul, he goes on to go through a list of seven different gifts that are vitally important in the body of Christ. And, and so he says that, not that it's an exhaustive list, but he says that we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And where God has given us a gift, an ability to do something for him in the local church, then Paul's point is that we must do it to the best of our abilities. We must put our everything into it. This is part then of what it means to actually offer ourselves entirely to God, to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. We actually do the best that we can in whatever God has called us to do. And so, like I said, this isn't exhaustive. It's not like he's saying these seven are the only seven. You can probably think of others. But these are kind of representative of the different gifts that God has apportioned to the church. So he begins with prophecy. And he says, if that's your gift, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. And so he says, the way that you can discharge the responsibility of prophecy best is if you limit it to the, to the apportion of your faith. You limit it to the extent of your faith. So... So then there's a bit of disagreement as to what exactly prophecy is. Some people say that prophecy is just preaching. Others say that prophecy is a supernatural revelation given to you from God to share with the rest of the congregation. My point isn't to adjudicate between those different interpretations, um, because either way you look at it, the point of the matter is that the way in which a, a prophet is supposed to communicate God's word is supposed to be limited to the extent of the the insight that God has given them, the faith that God has given them. So they're not to go making big claims about things that they don't know about, that God hasn't revealed to them. They're supposed to keep it within the bounds of what God has revealed. And this is important too. When we are preaching scripture, when we are communicating scripture, we're supposed to stay within the bounds of what we understand. Mm -hmm. Then serving comes next in the list. And he says, if your gift is serving others, then do it with your serving. That's what you're supposed to do. Do it well. It says, if your gift's teaching, then teach. If it's um, encouragement, then do it. Giving, leading, showing mercy. And he goes through all these gifts. And he says, if that's your gift, do it. Do it well. Uh, and so I'm not going to go through each of those and unpack exactly what each of those are. But notice the important point is that this list of gifts varies quite a lot. And they're not always the kind of things that are publicly recognized in the church. So if you think to yourself, what does a church really need? And you start thinking about the things that are really important. You think, well, we need leaders, and we need teachers, and we need those who serve. And you think, well, yeah, th that's kind of it, isn't it? Um, but Paul doesn't end with those three. Paul goes on and he elaborates other gifts, things that are equally vital, but are not always as publicly recognized. Um, so we need people that encourage or exhort us, as Paul says. We need people that have got that gift of exhortation or encouragement, because... I'm sure if you're anything like me, there's times when you get discouraged and there's nothing better than when a brother or sister comes along to you and says something to you or sends you a message via text or whatever just to let you know that they're, they're encouraged by you, that, that they value what you're doing. And it's such an encouragement, isn't it? And we need people like that in the church. 
Um, we need people, not only who do that, we need people that give, as the text says. So much of what we do here as believers is dependent upon those who give generously. This very building that we're in, the, the, the resources that we have, food, literature to give out, so much of what we do here is because of the fact that the Lord's people have been exceedingly generous. And we ought to thank God and, and rejoice in people that, that give generously. We need such people. And we need them people that show mercy. It's another thing that it says. Um, these are people that show pity and concern for others in need. Uh, and there are people in the church that, that have needs of one kind or another, whether it's they're physically sick and they need someone to show concern for them, or maybe it's some other kind of problem that they're dealing with. And Paul says that such people are to do it cheerfully. You don't want coming to you don't want someone coming to see you if they're doing it just because they feel they have to and they're dreary and grudging about the whole thing. No, Paul's point is that if you're going to show mercy, show kindness to others, then do it cheerfully. That's what's really important. And so we need all of these different kinds of people in our assembly and more besides. The point is that we've all got different roles to fulfill and we have to fill them to the best of our abilities. Another point that I'll make about this list, and there's many points that I could make, but just one point, is that the list isn't divided up by gender. And this is something which actually you get confused about if you're reading the ESV, and even the King James Version, because it's got the generic masculine in it. But it's, it's just a generic masculine. There's nothing that's dividing up this list by gender, saying that males do one thing, females do another. And to be clear, I'm not saying that the public exercise of these gifts can be done by males and females equally. What I am saying is that these gifts in various spheres are distributed equally to men and women. And so some of these duties, they aren't public duties. Encouraging isn't necessarily a public duty. Showing mercy isn't necessarily a public duty. Neither is teaching for that matter. Um, and so uh, leading as well, that's not necessarily a public duty. We lead each other in various ways. And what I would suggest is that, that God is calling us, whoever we are, men or women, to pursue what God has gifted us to do. And whatever sphere that is, whether that's public, standing at the front, or whether that's private or a less public, in whatever way it is, God calls each of us to use the gifts that God has given us to the best of our ability. And in short then, what Paul sees is that the life of Christians is one which is bound up with serving others because Christ has bound us together as one body. And in this body that we've been brought into, we've each been given unique abilities to serve one another. And we ought to do that to the best of our abilities as those who have presented ourselves entirely to God. And so we seek to do that to the best of our abilities. So in these verses that we've looked at together, the question has confronted us, how do we live in view of the mercies of God? How do we respond to God's extravagant mercy that he's talked about in chapters 1 through 11? Well, Paul's answer is that we hold nothing back from God. When we see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, when we see that God held nothing back, he did not spare his own son, then that prompts us to, to say that, that we give all of ourselves to God. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But it's not just a call to private individual devotion. Like I said, it's not less than that. 
but it's more than that. Because this is God's purpose for us, to actually bring us together into a new community. A new body of believers that demonstrate a new way of life, that demonstrate God's transforming work in our midst, that demonstrate the dawn of the new creation in our midst. And so then the church is no optional extra to the Christian life, whereby we just decide, oh, I would like to join a church. And the church is fundamental to who we are as Christians, because this is the context in which we live our new lives in Christ. And so we do it by loving and serving one another, using the gifts that God has given us. And so my prayer is that God would help us to do that over the coming year. We've got many challenges. We don't know what those challenges are going to be. But as we approach the the rest of this year, let us offer ourselves entirely to God. And in doing that, offer ourselves unreservedly in, in service to one another. The precise form that our obedience takes will vary from one person to another. God has gifted us differently. But in whatever responsibilities God has given us, let's do them to the best of our abilities, precisely because God has done so much for us. He's lavished his mercy upon us. So then what can we hold back from God in view of his grace? Let's pray. Almighty and loving Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have lavished upon us. Thank you most of all for 